Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Today we have a special guest for everyone, Mr. Brian Gerber, who's the CEO of Hemper. But I also want to say it's royalty. This one of the first times, maybe the first time that we have royalty in our show because he's the king of cones. Isn't that royalty? (laughs) How'd you get the moniker, king of cones? (laughs) Thanks, Len. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it has been a long journey to say the least. Uh, I guess they'll start from the beginning. Basically. All right. Well, so, so let's pause on the start from the beginning on the, okay. I want to, I want to know, I want to know more about you. Let's start with where did you grow up? Grew up in Maryland, uh, my whole life lived in Atlanta for like a year, but came back to Maryland, uh, went to high school there. Uh, then I went over to George Washington University in D.C. And so, how was your there. how was your childhood like? Do you have uh, siblings? You grew up like in a suburban area, or like give me a little bit of color so I can kind of yeah. so we can know you a little I, bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually moved around a lot when I was a kid. I'm product of divorce, so had parents you know all over the place, but. Grew up in Darnstown, Maryland originally, went to like three or four different elementary schools, uh, finally settled in an area called Gaithersburg, Maryland, which I lived in like this planned community. So it was kind of like a city wrapped around a neighborhood, basically. And so, yeah, it went like bankrupt in the 90s and then it, it was too, before its time and then it rolled into being an awesome type of living style. Uh, so that's where I grew up originally. So, uh, siblings or? Yeah, I have, uh, an older brother and an older sister. I'm the youngest of three. Uh, they're, uh, seven and five years older than me. So they were too cool to hang out with me. So I was kind of the lonely star. (laughs) Yeah. You're, you're the baby of the family, but then you got, you got the attention and probably like I'm, I'm divorced too. And I have a, just about an 18 year old daughter. So I can see where, you know, you have sort of uh, this family dynamic where, you know, the parents are pulling on you and uh, looking at you as sort of their, their person. Did you experience any of that? I, I, I lived with, you know, my mom for many years. uh, And my dad, I moved in with him once I got into the sixth grade when my brother went to college 
And yeah, so I kind of, I lived with both parents, different areas. I moved to Atlanta with my dad for a year uh, and came back to Maryland with my mom. So I've kind of jumped around a lot as a kid. Well, was that, was that like uh, your own choice? You wanted to live with that or was it like a... Yeah, I didn't really get along with my mom when I was younger. And so she would just butted heads all the time. And I had a lot of anxiety as a kid, so I really didn't want to go to school. And she was like, get out of bed, you know, you worthless kid, you know. <laughs> and my dad was more like, you know, my dad's an OBGYN, so he was too busy to really care, you know. <laughs> so my, my dad used to, <clears throat> so I was the lazy, like do nothing kind of kid. That's what he told me. And I had ADD. Mm-hmm. So to go to school, like waking up in the morning was the worst. But one of the reasons why it was the worst because my mom <clears throat> was allergic to air conditioning and I grew up in Philly. I live in LA now. So, and I'm making air quotes for those who can't see it, allergic to air conditioning. So whatever, I don't, I never heard of such an allergy, but okay. So I would have a fan in my window that would blow hot steaming air. And I, I always had issues falling asleep. So I would like lay there at night and listen to my, my radio and I would record songs off the radio and make mixtapes. It was like half the night. And when it's time to wake up in the morning, I slept for three hours and I can't wait. So my dad would either physically pull me out of bed or the best was he pours cold water on me to wake me up. Oh, goodness. So that's like... <laughs> yeah, no, my, my whole thing was I wanted to stay home and play video games all day. And so my dad thought it would be funny if he took the... Uh, the router with him to work. And I guess I was kind of, kind of a smart kid. So I la- lived in this plant community and there was a Kmart there. So I just left the house one day and bought like a Netgear little wireless little plug-in thing. So he thought he was, you know, I was home bored all day, but I was playing video games still. There you go. See, you. so you're, so there's always a way. And by the way, that that's a sign of, uh, an entrepreneurial mindset when you're starting to figure things out. Hey, you know, I have this obstacle. What can I do to kind of overcome that? And you figure that out. So moving into what you just started saying, uh, you went to, was it Georgetown that I heard you say? Uh, George Washington. Oh, University. sorry, sorry. George Washington. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, from there, you, uh, how did you get into cannabis per se? I, I know it's not direct cab, but I'm just trying to yeah. figure out how, how that so, all started. I guess my first time I experimented with cannabis was like the summer going into like ninth grade. And so pretty early on. And I didn't really think too much about it, to be honest. I was like, oh, it tastes weird. Got dry mouth. You know, beyond that, I was just like, you know, doing what the cool kids were doing, I guess. And uh, so that was like my first forte into it. And then uh, I also have ADD. So it uh, once I got to college level, I realized, you know, my dad put me on Adderall when I was in the 10th grade because I just have this visual processing disorder. So I like read things and it just gets jumbled up in my head basically. Right. And so the Adderall made me go from like zero to hero in like two seconds. And, you know, it's really intense on the body. So when I got to college, I actually use it as kind of a come down thing to help go to sleep, you know, after being at the library all day or whatever it might be. And so that was kind of how I got back into cannabis. And really, uh, you know, I've always smoked here and there. I took a couple of years off during high school. Uh, and like I went to community college for a couple of years before GW. And I like used it as a, a reward almost, you know, hey, I'm going to study for this test. You know, if I get an A, I'm going to go, you know, smoke a blunt. Right. And so that's kind of how I, I, I started using it smarter. Right. And I think that's what cannabis use is all about. Right. Just using it to tailor to, you know, your day to day lifestyle, what, you know, whatever phase you're in. Yeah, I, I love that example because I, I sort of did the same thing. I would uh, I had a, a stint in corporate America for a while. I've been in cannabis space for a long time, but, you know, my ex-wife told me you have to get a real job. So I went to work for Price Waterhouse. We had to wear a suit and tie every day and I know to do all that stuff. So I would work and I would reward myself with with cannabis afterwards, like put in a right. full day of work. And I'm like, oh, man, this is for me. Instead of that, you know, right. some people pour themselves a drink or a glass of wine. Not really right. my thing. So, yeah, right. exactly. Likewise. What 
Yeah. So like when, once I got to GW, it was, you know, I, I stopped really taking Adderall for like going to class and really just used it as like a study aid. And, but, you know, honestly, after you, you know, uh, two, three day stint at the library, you, you know, you just need it, you know, it, it really helps you calm everything down and take off the edge. And so I, I got, you know, I was always a user. And then uh, once I graduated in 2015, I literally started this business like a week after I graduated college. So I kind of, I didn't do the corporate America thing. I didn't go to grad school. I, I majored in accounting and information systems. So I, I'm techie and I know numbers. And so I figured that gave me a good leg up on how to, at least what a healthy business looked like, you know? And so, you know, I was that kid in the last semester of college building a website on Shopify as opposed to studying for my finals. And so we launched the original business, which was Hemper uh, in 2015, June 1st. And that uh, kind of catapulted about uh, six months in, I'd say we, launched this like guest curated concept where uh, it was kind of like smoked like Snoop Dogg for a month. Well, let, let's that, back up. Let's back up okay. on this. So you launched hemp, but you know, being an entrepreneur myself, there's a process, right? So you're, you're in college, you're building websites, whatever you're doing, but why hemper? Like what was the impetus of why you decided to do that? So I actually had two companies that I started at the same exact time. Uh, like my last year of college that I was trying to get off the ground. And I think as I was just moving through natural progression, one phased itself out and one, you know, rose as the you know champion. And that's, you know, I, I was smoking at the time. And honestly, what was happening was, um, you know, my buddies would come over, we'd all smoke. I'd have like a box of raw rolling papers on my table and they'd be like, Hey, can I throw you like five bucks for a couple packs? Right. That was like, Sure. Why not? You know, I already got it here. Right. And otherwise I had to walk literally like a 30 minute walk across campus to a convenience store that actually carried something other than zigzag white papers. And that was what started kind of the, you know, marination of this idea of like, well, it's very limited. Going to a smoke shop is kind of an awkward experience. You know, people yell at you for saying the word bong. You know, you don't even know what language you're speaking by the time you leave there. And that was kind of the factor. I was just smoking a ton of joints and going through these rolling papers. And basically Amazon wouldn't let me put this on subscription because this category is kind of restricted there. And that was what led me to the Hemper concept initially. Okay. So you were like, okay, where's the gap? The gap is like, I have papers. People want papers. It's uh, a pain in the ass to get papers or other uh, you know, materials to help well, me. There, there was no like online resource really for like, right. what is the latest, greatest stoner gadget? Right. And I thought it was such a cool concept to be like the guy curating products for people who use cannabis, but don't necessarily know what they really need. And that was kind of the progression was like, oh, we're curators of this, these products. People don't even know they need this stuff and it makes their you know consumption or ritual better through these products so you you have the concept and you kind of said all right i'm going to go out and i'm going to see what the market is because i believe there's a market demand for this what do you do to get started so yeah 2015 was like a huge subscription box like economy you know roaming around and like Birchbox had just raised like 90th million dollar and, you know, Fat Fit Fun and Dollar Shave Club just got bought by Gillette. So it was like, a, you know, a lot of talk about subscription economy. And I was just fascinated with, okay, you know, a lot of these cannabis products are replenishables, you know, whether, you know, I started getting really fascinated with like all the different categories, right? So it's like, you know, preparation goods, cleaning gear, odor eliminating, storage, glass, vapor, you know, all different types of categories. And I was like, whoa, like it's kind of endless, you know, like, and there wasn't really that many companies that were really like developing innovative, unique kind of like no brainer products. Mm -hmm. And I, that's like kind of how it stemmed was, I was literally curating these boxes for myself, right? I was a recent college graduate. I needed cool, fun stuff. You know, people came over, you know, I wanted to, you know, everyone wants to put someone else onto something. Right. You know, and like I said, every stoner knows 15 stoners. And so once people started coming over and I had all these random gadgets, everyone was like, whoa, that's awesome. 
And it just kind of, I started asking my friends like, Hey, would you buy into something like this? Or, Hey, would you, you know, does this sound interesting? And, you know, whether they were bullshitting me or not, you know, it, it was positive thoughts, you know, right. or feedback. So, so, so you started the, the company, you launched a website and then you have to let people know that you exist, right? Yes. Some way? How, yes. How'd you do that? So built the Shopify website, uh, started going on social media, Instagram, initially myself and just posting. And when I first started, there were actually a couple of other subscription boxes already in the space, but it wasn't something that I would buy into. It was a lot of like off brand products. So like, you know, not raw, not zigzag, not, you know, name brands. Right. And I was more looking for name brand stuff. And so I was like, you know what? I think I could come up with a more compelling offer. And that's kind of what, you know, born the hemper box. And how did I get people really was just, you know, looking at what was in the market and then just stepping it up a notch, right? Really, I didn't reinvent the wheel. I didn't develop products from the bat. You know, it was really just curating third-party products. And I guess I was just a better curator than what was out there at the present moment. Uh, and and hey, so... Yeah, obviously we're in a restricted space and we can't advertise, and that was an that's that's where I was going to ask you yes. uh, what obstacles did you have to overcome to advertise? Yes. You know, anything to do with cannabis related? Right. Well, one, you know, also payment processing. I was naive. I signed up on Shopify, got on Stripe, and started processing. You know, I had you know uh, 30, 30 orders my first month. And to get people to know about me more, I started going on the other competitors' uh, social medias and going down their follower list and basically grassroots DMing every single one. Hey, I know you're following the Birchbox or the, the Burnbox page. Have you checked out Hemper before? Right. And literally one by one, by the hundreds, right? And thousands. And it was 24 7 on Instagram when I first started. And so, how it really catapulted initially, it was um, month six, and we came up with this guest curated concept. So there were other subscription boxes that were advertising through this like WeTube community on YouTube. And there was this lady, Jane Giroux, who had like 20,000 subscribers, and she was doing Burnbox unboxings. And Burnbox is no longer alive, but uh, she was doing these unboxing videos. And I was like, whoa, like, I wonder if people would buy into her curating a box one month. And it became kind of this joke, like get James box and people really started buying into it. And we exploded. We went from like two, 300 subscribers to over 1500 subscribers in a month. Wow. So the snowball effect started happening very early on and uh, it just clicked with people. You know, it was an unconventional way for people to really interact with their, you know, this influencer or their fans. And, you know, it was, like I said, it was originally a smoke like Snoop Dogg for a month. You know, you're listening to their music, you're watching their YouTube videos. Now you're sitting on the couch consuming just like they are. And people just really took to this concept. And, you know, it was, you know, they did the unboxings. And so I just started doing this over and over again, cooler collaborations, larger influencers. And that's how I got the marketing going first was really through this influencer program that I had going on. I love that, man. It's, and it's grassroots and you, you're leveraging people that already have a following. Um, so it, at some point, did it get saturated and then other people started you know, going after influence or was there a sort of a delta in that? Yeah. Online? So once I got to about the six month mark of doing curated boxes, another sub subscription box company called Daily High Club came out and started literally just replicating exactly what we were doing, like to the T. And while, yes, it got annoying, we just started working with larger people that they couldn't get access to. And so we've worked with, you know, musicians and hip hop artists and all different types of walks of life. So how do you, so how do you do that? I'm just curious, uh, do you DM them? Do you go after their management? Do you get like, what is, what is the approach if I wanted to reach out to Snoop, let's say, and I know that's like the, the pinnacle of the industry, right. maybe, or it's one of them. Uh, but what would be, what would be your approach? And I don't want you to give a, you don't have to give away your trade secrets or anything like that. Just 
you know, I'm 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 a I'm just a guy, and I want to start a business, and I want to get to one of these uh, celebrities to say, hey, try my product. Maybe you can go out and, and endorse it if you like, and we'll we'll rev share or something like that. Right. So there's not one approach. There's many different ways to get to these people, right? And you know how we started was literally just direct messaging them. Hey. You know, directly from the Hember page. Hey, uh, you know, my name is Brian. I'm the CEO. Uh, we'd love to work together. You know, any chance we could schedule a call to like, you know, explore this further, right? And that was really just super grassroots. I really learned quite off or quite early that business is all about relationships and mm-hmm. long term mindset. And if I wasn't the guy going out there and trying to get these people, they would be like, all right, who's this? you know, low level social media person trying to get me to do a post, right? That's not what it was about. It was more trying to create a relationship with these people, understanding, hey, what do you have going on? And, you know, do you have a tour coming up? Can we do merch for you that might lend into the box? Is there, can we work together on this? And, you know, sometimes we had to go through record labels, which was a nightmare. Sometimes we knew the manager. And so, like I said, it's not just one approach that works. It's really, you know, however you can thread that needle. But you found that like DM through Instagram maybe is better than Twitter or or, or something. Of that nature. I have, it depends I have found, yeah, it depends on who they are. I found that nowadays, if I direct message people, no matter how big they are, I'm astonished when they get back to me. You know, people are looking for deals. You know, and you know, people are checking their you know, direct messages. And it, it's not far-fetched for someone to respond back and like, hey, here's my manager's email or yeah, awesome. Like, thanks for reaching out. Because oftentimes, you know, we reach out to people who are smoking and they are intrigued by these products, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's fun for them, right? First and foremost, before the business starts happening. Interesting. Yeah, it definitely, definitely makes sense. Uh, you know, we, we have our business, the end of DNA uh, kid and, we try to, re- we've hired companies that would go after influencers and it never really worked out well because it's not that personal approach, but you're absolutely right about relationships. When you meet somebody and say, hey, take a look at this. I'll go over the results with you. There's nothing, you don't have to post anything after going through that and they like the process themselves or like some, now you can say, hey, would you share this with your community? Only if you like it. And I think that's a really good approach to take. I absolutely agree with you. Um, so I read Hemper, but there is also Hara Supply. Is that is that am I saying yeah. it correctly? Is that so? What's the difference yeah. between the two? Is it a, a merger? Tell me how that came about. So Hemper was the first three years. So 2015 to 2018, that was just direct to consumer e-commerce. Uh, Got into a lot of product development on that side, you know, kept the box fresh, all that good jazz. And then uh, we started getting an interesting reputation of supplying and being really scrappy at manufacturing product for the packaging companies. So like marijuana packaging, Kush bottles, those kinds of companies. And we were producing glass for them initially out of India. And my one of the business partners, my random college roommate at GW is Indian. And so we kind of played that whole role and we started uh the interesting opportunity basically push bottles hit us with you know hey we're trying to uplist on the nasdaq we're getting rid of our paraphernalia division but we have this other opportunity uh called pre-roll cones and we have you know seven million dollars outstanding with futurola you know i know you guys are making glass in india can you make cones and i don't know if you know this but cones are all handmade in the world and so Mm -hmm. it's a labor arbitrage and so this was a much bigger business than obviously glass box. And so I, we did some research. RJ went over to India for about a couple months. We came back with some samples, went in for another meeting. They approved the samples. And I walked out with a half a million dollar purchase order that day. And that funded our first facility. And kind of fast forwarding to today, we're now the largest manufacturer in the world for pre-rolled cones. We produce about 90 million of them a month for the market's largest entities. Wow. That's, so that's how you got the Cone King moniker. Yes. Uh, yes. So, and that's where it led. So Harris Supply is the manufacturer of the actual products like the cones. And did you say glass too or? Correct. Yes. Got it. Um, Okay, well that's cool. So so no 
So then you moved out of the the box in, into the manufacturing uh, space. So we, we still have Hemper and the subscription box and all that jazz. Uh, we just basically added a new business line, which is now pre-rolled cones and some packaging stuff. Got it, got it, got it. So what are some of those obstacles? Are you still seeing the same kind of obstacles? Uh, but you're mostly dealing with B2B at this point, that I'm, I'm assuming. Are there still obstacles yeah. in getting yourself out there? Or is like now you have you know, these kind of companies like Kush Bottles, et cetera, they just give you uh, right. or sort of and that's it? Yeah, so when we first started, so kind of the cone business is super small. So originally it was two guys out of Indonesia controlled 90% of the market for about 20 years. And there were micro sites, you know, kind of like sweatshop, you know, styles in Indonesia and India. And a lot of bad cones were coming out of India. So we actually had a ton of cleanup duty when we first started convincing people, no, we're different. You know, we're GMP certified, we're ISO certified, we're, you know, got all these certifications, we're making cones in clean rooms. It's not what you're used to coming out of India. And I don't know if you've ever tried building something there, getting something manufactured or dealing with India at all. It's a pain in the ass. You know, they're, they're 20 years behind China. They're not as sophisticated. And they're not as willing to figure things out. So it was a big hurdle starting out. We had to really do a lot of cleanup duty, convincing people, nope, this is different, you know, sampling, whatnot. But when we first went out, you know, Kush was our sales front, basically. And so we weren't really selling to anyone other than Kush. And they convinced everyone initially to really come on in and start buying coats from us. And so so let me let me read just rewind back. Why cones? Like, where did you, and, and what you just said is, is really interesting because 90% was controlled by one company, but in your due diligence, what was, what was the impetus for cones? Like, why did you decide there was a gap in an opportunity? So I went in for a meeting at Kush Bottles and I didn't even know why I was there. And that's when they told us they were getting rid of their paraphernalia division. And Nick, who's the owner uh, they've been trying to acquire us since like 16 months. Into uh, Nick's, Nick's been on the show before. He's a friend. So okay. I lo- okay. Yeah. I love Nick. He's a great guy. We talk all the time. And so he's been a friend, a mentor, buddy, all of the above. And so he's been trying to bring me onto the team for years. And I was like, you know, Nick, I, I love you. I-, I just, I'm sorry. I have this vision. I got to see it out. And, you know, obviously he respected that and always threw me these different opportunities. And so there was this shortage in the market. And the lead times were like six plus months. And that was, that's why Nick hit me with the opportunity was because he's like, dude, I need these cones. I want to go take, you know, raw and future as lunch money. And I need your support to go figure this out on the manufacturing side. Hmm. So that's how we stumbled upon cones. It was really an opportunity presented to us that we just took and really ran with, not like, you know, we segmented it out. We, you know, it was like a, you know, business plan. It was not part of the plan at all. That's what I was saying. It, it seems like it's a, it's a little bit of a, a sidestep, but it's, it makes sense now that you're, but if you're, if you're doing a box, you know, a subscription box, a, and all of a sudden now you're a co-manufacturer, I couldn't put the two and two together, but that, that makes, now makes sense. Um, are you, doing retail on the cones too like or is it just all uh wholesale so we do so we manufacture for a lot of the big tobacco guys that have retail cones so like you know brands like zigzag and raw and ocb and so they're the ones that are pushing those cones to the retail locations we do mainly uh bulk boxes, which we sell to processors, MSOs, and cannabis brands. And then we do customization on like the filter tip and stuff for them. Got it. So uh, back to Hemper and, and the box, are you still uh, getting celebrity endorsements and you're still doing that uh, thing with like so, the celebrity box curated? So, yeah. So for the first three years, we really went hard on the celebrity curated boxes. And then we ended up actually moving out to LA for a couple years uh, 2017 through 2019. And honestly, we just got so tired of dealing with famous people that we phased out collaborations and we actually started doing more theme, 
proprietary theme-based stuff. And actually, people started taking to that even more than the celebrity curated, because if you don't like Snoop Dogg, you're not going to buy his box. But you could like UFO-themed or Ducky theme or, you know, whatever it might be, right? Or, you know, you know, any type, you know, gaming theme. And a lot more people started buying into it because it's something they can relate to more than they can a celebrity. Yeah, you sort of took the words out of my mouth in my next question. That's what I was going to ask you. How, what were some of the challenges working with celebrities? Because living in LA, you get this sort of, I'm from Philly and I've been in LA for 12 years. So coming to LA and having these relationships where people actually tell you to your face they're going to do something and... It's like, wait, we just had this discussion. What do you mean? Who am I? You never heard of me and it didn't happen. And that's not the way. What? So there, there's a pattern to working with within this confines of, you know, it's not really Hollywood, it's just L.A. And there seems yes. to be this uh, this flakiness that that's common here. So I wanted to see because we ran into yeah. So I yeah. used to have I used to have dispensaries back in the day. And uh, we were the, we were the at one point we were the home of corrupt Kush and Meth Man's Blackout OG, and it was the same thing. And we're working with these people, and then and then there's like ten other people that are associated with these people, and this didn't happen, and it just it became such a cumbersome thing. So I want to ask you about your experiences, but it seems like you've had similar experiences. Yeah, so that was definitely a culture shock coming from the East Coast myself. You know, we are East Coast hustle all day, every day. And when I moved to L.A., I was like, what is going on here? And it was just a pace below. And not just a pace below, but a lot of, like you said, flakiness, you know, problems delivering or holding true to their word. And we weren't accustomed to this. You know, like I said, we're East Coast guys. We do what we say and we say what we do. And it's rare. And I think that that is actually why we were really successful in LA is that we were actually just a breath of fresh air. And we actually were delivering on exactly what we said we were going to deliver on. And dealing with, you know, the record labels, you know, we went over to Warner and Universal and had meetings and everyone. And, you know, you're dealing with the manager and the boyfriend, the boyfriend's manager, and then the the (laughs) fourth boyfriend, and then the other manager. And you're like, who am I dealing with? Why can't we just get a social media post up? Like, what, why is this so difficult? Right. And then through your, through your efforts of trying to just get the deal done, you end up souring the relationship because you come on so strong just to make it a success. And they look at that as like, oh no, they came on too strong. I didn't like that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then it was just like, okay, we can't do this anymore. We're just trying to do good business. We had a contract, we had an agreement, we paid you, you didn't deliver. This is nonsense. We're done. Right. And kind of just working with larger people didn't get better, got worse you know, because they had more red tape and more people that had to chime in on shit. And I mean, you know, we had so many times where the record label would call us two weeks before the tour started and be like, Hey, can we get merch made? And we'd be like, guys, it's in two weeks. What are we talking about here? Nobody really understands how things are manufactured, you know, and how long it truly takes, you know, and what that process looks like. So that was really frustrating dealing with celebrities and, you know, their managers and the, because when you're dealing with real legit celebrities, everyone owns a different part of them, right? So the merch rights are over here. The music rights are over here. The, you know, the, you know, they got their own little thing going on themselves. Right. And they're all just trying to figure it out and they have too many deal flow, too much deal coming. And what happens is they get shiny object syndrome. So if you're in the middle of working out a deal or you have a deal already going and then, you know, they announce this crazy tour or some alcohol company, that has a ton of money that wants to work with them, you're kind of shit out of luck because you don't have those resources, right? Do you, do you think that the celebrity themselves have the power of veto? Like what I mean is if they think they just want to do this, they're really, really interested, do they have the power to sort of push back on management and these other things or, or is it doesn't really I think it depends on how big they are. Once I think once they're too big, the record labels take all of those decision-making capabilities away because otherwise it could just go to shit. They're worried about the image, right? And longevity. And, you know, if they have like some kid friendly thing over here, you know, they're not going to say yes to some cannabis thing over here. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. I felt the same way. And you hit the nail on the head about 
the how big the celebrity is. Deal the bigger they are, the it seems like the less power they actually have over their own rights and image, etc. Like I've had conversations with like huge celebrities, like recognizable names, like you know Snoop type of uh, celebrities, yeah. and they love the concept. We hang out, we we smoke, we shake hands, we you know done deal, let's do it. And then you know the the suits get involved, and yes. it's like, well. You know, it'll be thirty-five percent, and this person here, and this, and it gets, and, it's, and and if you have, you know, a couple of tiers lower recognizable celebrities, it completely a different experience where it seems like they still have a little bit more power over, you know, their yes. their brand. Hundred um, percent. So, in in terms of uh, uh, scalability, are are there any issues like within the U.S. Are there any issues uh, since you're still doing the, the subscription box shipping or logistics? Like how do you handle all those kind of uh, challenges? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, dealing with COVID the last couple of years has been kind of a shit show. We've mitigated as much as possible. What we do is we actually manufacture a ton of our own products directly at our own facilities. So we're not really relying on a lot of companies. And I think that's where a lot of people need to really start looking internally is, you know, what can we bring in house? What can we take control over and what can we manage ourselves? Because a lot, oftentimes you're at the mercy of a manufacturing partner or, you know, a middleman or a trade company, and you don't really know what's going on or what the facility looks like or, you know, what the truth really is. And, you know, for us, it's, you know, we have a full design team here in-house. We rapid prototype, we have 3D printers, we got plotters, cutters, lasers, you know, everything. And so throughout the last, you know, five, seven years, we've really tried not relying on marketing agencies and product development agencies and, you know, people trying to come in and do cons- consultations. It just doesn't work when you're trying to move really fast. And, you know, for us, we're trying to keep control of as much as possible because, you know, we don't want it to just go off the rails. Right. And I think when you're a startup world and, you know, you don't have much red tape and you're making decisions like that, you know, you, you can't rely on people. It's, it's scary because, you know, if, if things take, two weeks too long, you could have missed the boat or the opportunity or the window and you, you just can't rely. Yeah. no, I completely agree at like, you know, agile development across the board, even when I talk to my team about on, on the IT and development side, I don't want to see any five-year plans and what we're going to do. Like we have to move quick. And it's sort of this, this Google model of just fail. It's okay to make yes. mistakes. Let's just, let's just fix it and move on. And I am extremely, uh, I don't have a lot of patience when it comes to uh, partners. And why are we waiting another two weeks? Why are we waiting for this? Let's just get it as much in-house as possible. But, you know, that creates its own challenges. And logistics has always been something that, you know, I, I see as, a, as, as a, a challenge and an opportunity, I guess. Because, I mean, first of all, within the U.S., you know, there are certain uh, laws and different states have their own uh, things where you can do or you can't do, but also expansion, international expansion. So I wanted to ask you from a business focus, what is your strategy? Are you looking to expand? Are you are you in the U.S.? Are you a global company? What, what are some of your strategies uh, for expansion? Yeah, so uh, my business, one of the partners, RJ, has actually been living in India for the last like three years. And mm-hmm. we actually have... 10 operating uh, manufacturing sites there with almost about 4,000 employees sitting in India right now. And it, I actually haven't been yet. Uh, and I know. Oh, you have like, to get to India, man. It's a trip. I've been a yes. couple of times. I used to work for a company uh, for a little while, my corporate days. There's an onsite offshore development company called Cognizant. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will probably know what the, uh, that company, but going to India, it's, it's such a trip, man. Like, I'll tell you some of the things that I witnessed from a, from like a Western mindset. I saw a family of five people on a motorcycle, uh, <laughs> which was interesting. I saw. So I was last time I was in Chennai and uh, in Bangalore, I think too. But basically, okay. there are so the traffic laws. There's oxen carts. There is, uh, they're going down the street with motorcycles and cars going the same direction. 
there's no sign. I don't know how there's not like a gazillion accidents every two minutes. Right. And, uh, but like the food. Uh, so quick story and, and I'm interviewing you, but I'm, I'm going to tell my story really quick. So I was told not to eat any of the, um, the seafood, any of the fish there. I, I don't uh, eat meat anyway, but I was told don't don't eat the. And when I when I started driving through India, I started seeing bodies of water with like sewage pipes. I'm like, I you don't have to tell me twice. I'm not eating anything that flows in these bodies of water. I saw it. I'm like, I'm not coming near that. And by the way, this isn't all over India. It's just the places that I was. I'm sure right. there's amazing, you know, fish, but whatever. Um, so I was there with a group. And I was like, my, my sales group was there and all that stuff. And uh, two nights before we had to leave, we went to a Chinese restaurant, like a high-end Chinese restaurant. And everybody's ordering, you know, shrimp fried rice or whatever it was, like right. Chinese uh, with with uh, seafood. Not me. I'm eating saffron rice and naan the entire time I'm there. And uh, <laughs> everybody got sick except for me. So uh, there you go. <laughs> I don't know. That was Smart an experience. One. Yeah, but it was a, it was a, it's a trip, man. I definitely recommend it because it's, it's a, a completely like 180 of what you would expect, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. Or, right. or, or in the West. Yeah, I was supposed to go actually March 2020 and it got canceled for COVID. And I was all prepped and got everything ready to go. And it was going to, we were going to do the Hindu Kush mountains and do a whole trip there and, but yeah, no, unfortunately it got canceled. We're trying to figure out when we're going back. We've just been so busy, but uh, yeah, no logistics wise. I mean, it's kind of funny. RJ and I have in the last seven years, we've only worked in the same office for max two weeks at a time. And otherwise it's just been phone calls every day, you know, meetings and, you know, just honestly having trustworthy partners, you know, when you're doing international business, it's a must, right? They got to be like blood brothers, you know, and that's the problem with a lot of companies that fail trying to expand internationally is that your partner is just, you're untrustworthy. Right. And they're you know screwing you before they even get to the nut. Right? Yeah. It's good to have like a brother who's taking care of you somewhere else where you can trust because in business. Right. Or yeah. But like, with, with the movement of the cannabis industry expanding uh, now, you know, first of all, Europe, now Thailand, uh, there's uh, yep. other South America. There's all these different things going on. Are you looking to sort of uh, expand your tentacles into those regions as well? Yes. Yeah. So we actually have a pretty sizable international business already. So we do, obviously, a lot of the cones we do uh, in glass and accessories is mainly U.S. and Canada right now. But we actually do have a ton of clients in like... Uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. We just picked up a big distributor. Uh, we got a couple stores in Japan actually selling our stuff. Uh, Interesting. So one of my, Isn't Japan, yeah, one of, Japan is, uh, they frown on cannabis, don't they? Or like, what, what is the... Well, it's, it's really big in CBD actually. And I think that uh, through that, they've actually opened up. And I think uh, we actually have like three or four stores in Japan that sell our products. And so one of them is on like a remote island, you know, just like ran, you know, somewhere out there and, you know, one's on the mainland and, you know, one of my bucket lists is obviously going to Tokyo and just, you know, get, you know, just seeing the products in a the store there would be so. But you're a gamer too, man. Like, well, how right. can, you know, Japan and Tokyo. Yeah. I, I spoke, I, I remember this is before COVID. Uh, I was scheduled to speak in Japan. I couldn't, I was supposed to be, I think I was going to Columbia at that time, so I couldn't make it. So I had to do my whole talk uh, via, it wasn't Zoom then, whatever right, their, right, their right. portal was, because it was, it was a rare thing. Oh my God, I have to do it, you know, like this, like we're doing uh, now. But uh, I regret, man, not not going there. But I remember even in that discussion, I, I think it was like 2018, some of like that, they were really, their cannabis laws were really weird and that they, they had a scientific community and a medical community that wanted to learn yeah. more, but they weren't really, uh, they weren't really pro cannabis at that time. Yeah, no, we, it's funny. We get these email, you know, inquiries and in, from our website and it's like, Hey, we're, you know, we're in uh, Japan and, you know, we would love to bring in the famous Hemper brand, you know? And so it's like, so surreal, like hearing that, like, you know, like that it's being sold over there. And I love but, that, man. 
Yeah, no, it's it's awesome. And so we're we actually been focusing on the international market, you know, quite a bit recently, just because things are opening up, you know, South America, we just got into Chile and Uruguay and a few other countries there. Uh, but dude, we haven't even scratched the surface, man. There's so much business still out there. It's it's so interesting. We're following your footsteps too. So we just got Brazil. Uh, we're now financing Chile and we and Uruguay the same way. So everywhere, I mean, we have a, we have a DNA test, so we don't we don't right. really sell you know cannabis, but but still, it's uh, all these countries that are trying to get. It's maybe it's a new shiny thing for them, but they're they're looking uh, to uh, get into something new and, and differentiate yes. themselves. Yes. So what what are your what are your personal goals like? What do you what do you want to achieve uh, in the next uh, you know couple of years? Where do you see yourself? Personal goals. Uh, I got engaged last year, so probably get married here in the next year or two. Positive. Congratulations. Thank you. I found a nice Jewish girl, made my mother happy. Uh, <laughs> and so definitely that. I uh, would love to do some more traveling now that things are kind of opening up again. Uh, a couple bucket list places. Uh, I think personally, I would love to see an exit here, you know, in the next year or two. Uh, just, you know, finding a larger strategic to help us, you know, build out that international market. You know, someone who's got distribution already. Uh, would be awesome. You know, I think just continuing to build the business, you know, it's obviously very surreal. We're even at this point, we've, we've done over a hundred million in lifetime sales and I'd love to hit 200 million, you know, over the next couple of years. And, you know, I think just, yeah, just keep plugging away, man. I mean, I love what I do and, you know, it's, I'm, I'm pretty simple. You know, I go to the gyms, try to stay healthy. You know, we deal with a lot of stress as entrepreneurs and, you know, living a clean life is super important. Well, I was going to ask you, that was my, uh, my one, next question for you was about uh, sort of how, how do you decompress? Do you have a mindfulness practice? Uh, is it exercise? Did, did, like, I, I'll give you an example. So one of the things I, I did was uh, I took a, a class from um, Stephen Kotler. I don't know if you know, he's, uh, he runs the Flow Research Collective. So he wrote a bunch okay. of books with Peter Diamandis, but it's about flow. So how do you, how can you prime yourself for flow? And flow, the easiest way that I can explain it, it's like when an athlete says, you know, I was on this night, the basket, like a basketball player, the basket was like the size of a swimming pool. I couldn't miss from anywhere. So they're Perfect. actually measuring that to see that every single neurochemical that you have is firing at its perfect uh, amount, the exact amount that you can. So if you know where that is, you're not working, you're just in flow. Everything is kind of attracting to you, right. but you can prime yourself for that. So I'm try- I was trying to find what can I do to make sure that when I'm either before I'm going on stage or meetings or, or if, I'm, if I need to be in that, in that state, what can I do to prime myself? So finding that thing like I, I hike or, or do things out of nature, Right. Go to the gym and, and a good clean eating, as you, as you said, uh, mindfulness practice. So just trying to learn what works for you. For sure. Yeah. No, so when I first started the business back in 2015, I was I really started, you know, this like healthy mind, healthy body mindset thing. And I really, really held it to heart and really hold it true to myself and accountable and, you know, I've been going to the gym for many years, you know, at least four or five days a week, uh, eating pretty clean. And I knew that was how I was going to have longevity with this startup, right? I, I you get beat up, dirt, you know, in this process, you know, it's dark days, you know, a lot of them, right? And you got to stay positive. You got to stay mindful. You got to stay, you know, excited. And for me, going to the gym, eating clean, uh, I recently purchased, uh, well, actually about a year, two years ago, I got an infrared sauna at my house, which is a lifesaver for me. Uh, I sit in it anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour a day, and I get the best night's sleeps. I have clarity. Uh, it just you know, makes me feel clean, and that's one big crux that I lean on all, you know, for just a uh, healthy mind and healthy body. Uh, what else? Um, I eat a pretty strict diet more or less uh you know i have a ton of like 
all the Jewish people allergies. So I got my mother blessed me with all the bad stuff. So I can't really eat a lot of stuff. So I got to stay, you know, pretty clean on the eating. Uh, you know, I, I can't eat gluten and dairy and a bunch of other shit. And so uh, if I do start eating terrible, my, I just can't think clear. Uh, what else do I do? Um, I just bought a cold plunge for my house. So I'm going to try some cold therapy. Uh, and yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, I, I, you know, work out, do my sauna, try to get my eight hours of sleep every night. Uh, and yeah, that's pretty much yeah, it. It'll, it'll definitely be you up and we have to do your DNA test and see what genetic predispositions you have. Uh, those, those genes for gluten sensitivity, for lactose and all that other stuff. Yeah. And, I'm, uh, I'm actually doing... Some- the uh, I'm going to Mayo Clinic in October to do the executive health program there. And so they're going to do all the genetic markers, all the inflammatory markers, all the blood tests, everything. Just get I haven't had a checkup in years. And so I figured, you know, might as well get the Rolls Royce of checkups. Yeah, so, might as well. It makes yeah. total sense. Um, yeah. So, you know, entrepreneurship has its own challenges. You get beat up. But associate with the cannabis space, it's even worse. And I'll tell you, it was easier when we had dispensaries. Like, it was less intense than than having, I don't know, cannabis adjacent sort of thing. I mean, we don't, we don't we're not in the cannabis space, uh, but we're picks and shovels just like, in a way, that just like you. But the obstacles, like you you mentioned, uh, was a square or whatever, stripe. Payment processing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every little thing is payment processing, so you're in high risk. Insurance, you're you're in high risk. And I had a I had a thing recently with banking. So not only corporate banking, which was a pain, my personal banking. So because uh, I had I had a bunch of checks that needed to clear, and I was traveling. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna stop by my my corporate bank instead of getting a check that's gonna take three days to clear. I'm gonna take out cash which is five minutes away from my personal bank, go in there, deposit cash, and clear all my my checks so I can, uh, uh, my bills, whatever, that we're coming due. And I did it twice, two months in a row. I took out my salary in cash and, uh, you know, and paid. So I get a a call from the bank manager. Uh, Where is this money coming from? I said, well, here's my receipt. It's from, I don't want to mention uh, the bank. Eh, maybe I'll mention it. It's coming from my Citibank uh, account, which is my corporate account. And yeah. uh, I'm depositing my First Republic personal bank. Here's the re- It was deposited literally within 15 minutes of me withdrawing. And there's all these checks going through that. So the third month, they said, well, we would like you to do a bank check instead. The next month, I get a letter from First Republic Bank that they're canceling my account. They're closing my account. I was like, for what? Well, cash. And we did due diligence and you're associated with a cannabis business in some way. I mean, I was right. there for 11 years right. and hide uh, what we do for our business. So it, it's these kind of things that I don't think people realize the, no, the hoops don't. that we have to jump to be in this in this industry. Yeah, Green Rush. I had... When so it was, we had just hit fifty thousand processing a month on Stripe, and I get an email saying, "Who are you guys? What's going on here?" And uh, we see you're selling paraphernalia. Uh, we're shutting you down. And I wrote them back, and I pleaded and pleaded and pleaded with them to give me thirty days to find a replacement. And nowadays they don't give a fuck. They'll just shut you off. They don't care. But I guess it was it was right around when you know people were you know the whole payment processing massacre is what I call it. And uh, you know I so they gave us thirty days. Then we moved under like Cardworks, then AVPS, then another one got shut off. That got shut off. That moved over. And so I thought we were done numerous times. And my partners are looking at me like Brian. If we don't find a replacement, we're we're if we can't process payments, we're done. Right. And so it, yeah, people don't understand how, you know, crazy the processing world is even till this day, you know, if your chargeback ratio goes above 1%, 
you know, they're knocking you off because it's all these risk managers behind these screens that are just making these calls in a very linear way. And, you know, it's kind of like, bing, bing, okay, bye, right? Yeah, and, it's actual and, scientists and it's all risk uh, analysis. And you're yes. absolutely right. And and I remember the first time we got shut off, we were, when we first started, we were using PayPal, I want to say. Not only did they shut us down, but all the money they kept. They held, yep, likewise. And, so and they, for they kept, a while. Mm-hmm. They kept like, I think for us, it was 180 grand for almost 14 months. Yeah, it they was kept, like two years, exactly. It was yes. like two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because of the chargeback window, right? And so, yeah, no, it was insane. We, we like showed up at their offices. We we're like, guys, we're a small business. Like we can't, <laughs> like we'll cover, like whole 50K, release the rest, yeah. like something, yeah. right? Yeah. No, they, they won't play ball with you, right? They, they, they don't care. And, you know, you could plead and whine and, you know, fuss and whatever, but yeah, they don't, they don't care. So yeah, the, the pain processing thing is nuts. And, you know, even for like CBD and Delta eight and all that type of shit, you know, it, it's even crazier. All right. So, uh, I have some questions that I ask all my guests. Um, you kind of sort of answered the first one, but I'll ask it again. So we can get a little more color around it. Uh, so please describe your first experience with cannabis. My first experience with cannabis was my buddy, Will Hunter. We were behind the middle school that they just built in my neighborhood. And it hadn't, I think it was during the summer and we were sitting on the stoops behind the school and he rolled up a joint in a zigzag white rolling paper. And I took a couple hits and he was like, try this, man. And I was like, all right, fine. You know, <laughs> and uh, that was my first experience. I, you know, got, I would say stoned and we started driving around and, you know, just had the windows down and the breeze hit my face. And I was like, you yeah, know, this is kind of cool, you know. And so a good experience. Yeah, no, for sure. Cool. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm a big music guy. Uh, just curious. Do you remember the first concert that you ever went to? First concert I ever went to. Yes. My mother took me and my siblings and some of her, my sister's friends. And I think we went to a, it was either a Backstreet Boys concert or an NSYNC concert. And I was like, maybe like, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 at the time. And yeah, that was my first concert. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What was the last, do you remember what was the last concert you went to? The last concert. I don't go to many concerts to be honest. Uh, Maybe maybe it was, uh, maybe it was Backstreet Boys again because they're, they're back. Actually, I went to, uh, I think I went to go see Drake actually at the Verizon center. I think I did. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, what about a, an album that you, do you remember what the first uh, album you purchased was? First album I purchased. Uh, it had to have been some rock stuff, maybe like, I don't know, like Lincoln Park, Three Doors Down, you know, something like that. You know, I can't remember the, what was it Sam Goody's? Sam Goody? Yeah. yeah I, I mean, who goes to the malls anymore, but you know. <laughs> that that's you know the cd stores you'd hang out there and just listen to the music all day yeah i mean i used to <clears throat> i used to work at tower records way back in yep. the day if, uh, so that was uh, that was sort of my job through college uh is are you listening to anything today uh, that you think is cool that you want to share uh honestly i got my playlists on you know apple music and i uh nowadays i like you know like mashups and you know kind of like dance, uh, like, uh, not like EDM, but like, you know, just like, I, I listen to it when I'm at the gym and, you know, it hypes me up and, you know, gets me, you know, so going. I went to see, maybe this is something of an example, Girl Talk recently. Are you familiar with Girl Talk? Sounds familiar. Mashup, mashup DJ that does all this kind of thing. So anyway, uh, if you want to check out Girl Talk, the, he was pretty interesting. Uh, DJ mashes up like, rock and hip-hop and dance music and it's kind of kind of electronic but it has all these different elements uh in that okay uh wh- what has cannabis meant in your life 
a lot. It has obviously been a resource, you know, first and foremost, uh, especially, you know, for me, my biggest problem is just falling asleep, you know, shutting off my brain at night, getting that clarity and just toning things down to, you know, to the point where it's like, okay, you know, the, the lights aren't going to shut off tomorrow. It's okay. We can go to sleep. Let's just calm down and just kind of helps me shut off my brain. And also it helps with uh, a ton of my, I have a, all the stomach issues. And so I, it helps me with, you know, calming my stomach down and all those, all the stuff, the anxiety, you know, revs up, you know, and I mean, it, it's led me to my business partners who are now my brothers and, you know, my friends. And, you know, I couldn't have imagined, you know, that this plant would have brought them all to me, you know, in this mysterious way. And, you know, I think the industry as a whole is awesome. And I think it's super supportive. And, you know, I think we're all just trying to, you know, kind of pioneer our own lane. And I think it's super special that we're all connected by the plant and, you know, that it doesn't discriminate. And, you know, I, I think that's what it means to me. Yeah, I, it's great. I, I'd love to talk uh, more about the gut health uh, kind of issues because uh, we just finished a study at CU Boulder about um, anxiety and pain. And there's a there's a correlation between certain genotypes and how they express themselves with additional cortisol secretion. And if you have predisposition to gut health issues like IBD, it triggers the expression of some of those. So there's there's really a lot of correlations between the two. And but we'll we'll save it for another show. But I can definitely sure. talk to you about that offline. Um, all right. So bonus question: Please describe what your room looked like growing up. And I know you sort of traveled and I know you went between houses, so you can pick and choose whichever one you want to describe that's more descriptive. Okay. So I guess we'll start when I was a kid. I was a pain in the ass, so I didn't want to sit in the crib and I would climb out every single night. And so I forced my parents to get me this like big race car bed when I was little. And I had, you know, um, uh, what was it? Was it, uh, trains all over my room. I love trains. My dad had this, like, we lived in this big mansion growing up and in the basement, we had this one room where, you know, the Lionel trains and the gas powered ones. And he built this massive city and yeah. So it was like trains and cars and stuff like that. Cool. And then when you got older, like teenage, did you have a room with like with posters on the wall or anything like that? Or, uh, did I posters? Not really. Honestly, I was always outside. Whenever I could leave the house, you know, from the moment I got home from school, I'd leave and go hang out with my friends. And, you know, I guess you can't do this anymore. But when it's got dark, you come home. You know, <laughs> I was a latchkey kid, too. So I, I know exactly what you mean. Like we get home. I'm all by myself. I get my, on my bike and I ride and yep. see my friends and we play whatever until the streetlight came on. It's time to go home. To yeah. Dinner. I had a, I had a lot of uh, memorabilia. I played ice hockey growing up. Okay, and so cool. yeah, a lot of, like I played all sports actually. So I had like baseball memorabilia, hockey memorabilia, basketball. And my dad, cause he was a doctor, all the drug reps would take us to the games, you know, when they, when they didn't, you know, cut all that off. <laughs> so yeah, I, I hear you. But that's cool. Yeah, no. uh, yeah. So who's who's your hockey team? I guess coming from Maryland, it's the Washington Caps, and yeah. it was sucked because the first year that I moved out of DC, I lived in DC for like eleven years, and the first year I moved out of DC, they won the Stanley Cup. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm a Flyers fan, so it's, cool. Uh, yeah, it's cool, but we've haven't won since. <laughs> 75 i think so right it's, yeah. it's uh, i went to I, I went to philly once actually i did the you know the the big ben you know tour and the uh uh did the shake, uh, cheese steaks and the you know yeah you did you did it's the liberty it's the liberty yeah, bill liberty. the con yeah constitution declaration of yeah, independence yeah, yeah. and then the art museum rocky steps where you had to run like rocky and see the rocky statue and all yeah. that stuff yeah, 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 exactly. That was when I was cool. really young, about yeah. 14, maybe. There you go. Uh, Brian, where can people find out more about uh, your businesses, you, where can they contact you if they want to get in touch? Yeah, 
So uh, Hemper is Hemper.com, H-E-M-P-E-R, and Har Supply is H-A-R-A Supply.com. And my personal email is Brian at Hemper.co. Got it. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being on. Uh, this was great. And uh, hopefully we'll connect soon. Thanks, Len. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has kind of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects Network.